I have never been prouder or more excited than the day he pulled that piece of history up into the daylight. And although a rare find in the North, it is not impossible to discover one here. Nevertheless, it is remarkable for what it represents, in a historical sense, and for me, a deeply personal one. For these years, it has remained still and unaccounted for, until he happened to wave his coil over it. I was happy in the ground I didn't want to be found One of many, no less, no more Eons gone by and I had never seen the sky One more piece of iron ore Welcome to my podcast. This is Life Underground, and I'm Dan Tebow. In this episode, I will tell you why I became interested in metal detecting and the impact it has had on my life. The most frequent question I am asked regarding metal detecting is, what did you find? For obvious reasons, this is what most people are curious about. After all, the motivation to go out and dig in the dirt is to discover something that's hopefully of some interest or value. It's a perfectly good question. Other times I am asked, what got you interested in this hobby? And that's a subject I have only recently begun thinking about. I know why I continue to do it, and that's because I'm sort of addicted to it. After discovering my first 100-year-old coin, I became obsessed. That first one just makes finding an even older one that much more important. But why did I ever start in the first place? Answering this question also answers the first one. The best thing that ever happened to me was meeting a partner to go through life with and having our son to raise together. It's time-consuming, stressful, and costly, but as any parent would wholeheartedly agree, totally worth it. For me, having a son is sort of a bonus. I get to be a boy all over again and play baseball, fly drones, and in general, regress into fun and simple activities, all in the self-sacrificing name of parenthood. My wife is a teacher, and in combination with being a nurturing mom to our son, she sets a high level of academic expectation for him. I also started my professional career teaching 8th grade history, which lasted for the period of exactly one year. I soon left the classroom after discovering I wasn't cut out for the rigors of public education. I knew my subject well enough, but delivering it to young, distracted minds requires a skill that only a very few can master. Take it from me. My wife has a black belt. My meager contribution to the educational aspect of child-rearing is watching the National Geographic channel with our son. And in this age of digital communication and our fascination with smartphones and tablets, This is simply another screen to be locked onto. I realize how lame this makes me seem as a caregiver. Luckily for both of us, this is where we were introduced to two very interesting characters, George Wyant and Tim Saylor, also known as KG and Ringy. They are the stars of a reality TV show called Diggers, and in each episode they travel the country searching historical sites for old relics and coins. Over those winter months during his fourth grade year, my son and I thrilled to their crazy antics and passion for metal detecting. Also because they offered interesting historical backstories on the items they found. 
artifacts from the Revolutionary and Civil War battles, the shootout at the OK Corral, and Custer's last stand held us spellbound. This type of thing, we agreed, was for us, and we were hooked before we even started. It didn't take long before we had everything necessary for our own adventures. Any guy will tell you that one of the greatest things about having a hobby is all the gear that goes with it. Gloves to protect your hands from sharp objects is a must, and it's also wise to ensure that your tetanus shots are up to date. When an object is located, it must be excavated, and for this, a sturdy hand trowel is standard. To locate the item easily in the freshly dug hole, a smaller handheld detector called a pinpointer helps you find the target quickly. And we can't forget the toothbrushes and magnifying glasses. Old historical relics need careful cleaning and inspection for accurate identification. Soon the dense, muddy snowbanks had melted away, the ground had thawed, and the trees became full of fresh new leaves. The entire spring and summer loomed before us, and we were eager to begin exploring, just like our heroes KG and Ringy. So with all manner of implements ready and strapped to our belts, we suited up for the quest and headed out into the wild. And fortunately, we didn't have to go as far. One piece of advice we were given early on was to first search in your own backyard. This sounded counterintuitive as our house was built in 2008. The land was cleared of its trees and a huge hole literally blasted out for the foundation. In our minds, there was nothing old about our home or our finely trimmed lawn for that matter. Shouldn't we be venturing out into more mysterious and ancient places? And the answer to this question was maybe the most important history lesson we learned from metal detecting together. The fact is that every place is old and full of antiquity. Caught up in our present lives, we don't generally think of it this way, but all of us live on an ageless land, whether you are in the biggest city or the smallest town. When new homes are built today, the excavated earth is simply laid back down in a slightly different place. And even when the fresh topsoil is trucked in for that new lawn, almost certainly it was sourced from an old farm field or even quite possibly a Native American settlement. In this way, a layer of history can shift position and reorder itself, despite our ongoing progress. From the colonial period through the 1800s, the vast majority of the land was used for farming, and back then the term open space meant a landscape that was virtually devoid of trees. Sweeping views over rolling hillsides led to a blue-gray horizon in every direction. Agriculture was the overarching industry essential for a thriving and economically viable society. That landscape and its open pastures are now lost to second-growth forest and ever-encroaching segments of urbanization. Still, none of this can blot out the past. Eternally it remains just beneath our feet. This is why, within our first hour of searching and only 30 yards from our back door, my son found his first relic. It was an old horseshoe, a terribly bland, rusted piece of iron, and for some reason, inspiringly beautiful. Everything about it spoke of days gone by, a simpler though maybe more difficult time, and even in this tarnished and worthless condition, we thought of it as treasure. Unearthed with our idealized spirit of discovery, we became endeared to this old relic. We hunted for another hour and found nothing but trash, old cans, bottle caps, and useless scraps of metal. Tired and hungry, the next part of our adventure took place back in our kitchen as we ransacked the fridge for snacks 
and research the horseshoe on the internet. But instead of seeking mind-numbing amusement, we now engaged our technology to educate ourselves. We learned that this handcrafted artifact was made by a blacksmith for a large draft horse. Interested in a possible date it was made, we also discovered that hand-wrought iron shoes were replaced by the first manufactured steel ones in the late 1800s. We figured it was most likely between 100 to 200 years old. It was probably wrenched from a hoof as the combined muscle power of farmer and animal tilled the hard scrabble fields. The very land that now lay fallow underneath the whining engine of my rider mower. Our next finds were just as remarkable. Ongoing hunts uncovered a 1917 Mercury dime, a 1911 V-nickel, and 1903 Indian head scent, all within the confines of our own property. Just across the street, under a loosened piece of tar at the edge of the road, was another Indian head scent. This one dated 1863. All around us, the past seemed to come to life. Now totally intrigued, we scoured old maps of our town ranging between 1830 and 1870 to look for clues as to our surroundings. Our library and local historical society have copies of these handwritten documents, and illustrated on them are thin roads dotted with tiny black squares that represent homes, schoolhouses, churches, and shops. Many of these structures are long gone, but a legend ties the names of the various craftsmen, farmers, and families associated with them and the industries performed there. Born in 1862, Massachusetts Supreme Court Justice Arthur Prentice Rugg once lived in a house next to ours, and out front was a stagecoach stop. Around the corner from us lived little Mary Sawyer, the girl immortalized in poem and song when in 1816 her lamb followed her to school one day. The site where that old schoolhouse once stood is less than a quarter mile from our home. Interestingly, another site at the opposite end of our road was a blacksmith shop with the name A. Carter next to it. From this day on, whenever we drove through the town, our eyes looked at the landscape in a different way. From studying the maps, we imagined the way the town looked over 150 years ago, watching for any subtle feature or remnant of the past. In our visions, cars and trucks were replaced with horse and wagon, and the local coffee shop became the general store. The family joke was that we were constantly scanning the horizon for our next hunting site. It wasn't until the autumn, when the trees started dropping their leaves, that we finally saw it. Behind our post office and along the sloping embankment of the state road which cuts through our town were two stone foundations, quietly and defiantly marking the spot of the old A. Carter blacksmith shop and homestead. Our next excursion was now in sight. An old abandoned railway runs in front of these stonework footings, and it was along this track that we would next swing the coils of our detectors. Sending waves of current into the ground translates into sounds when metal objects are below. But even the best metal detector can only determine with relative accuracy what type of metal is in the ground. Because of this, we found a good share of trash. To my amazement, neither one of us was bored or could be deterred from our task. In this age of undisciplined, instant gratification, of which I am just as guilty as any, I believe it was the time spent in our historical research that enabled us to press on undaunted for over two hours. Finally, a clear, pure tone was heard singing from my son's machine. 
He asked me to come over to help, but I was too focused on my own searching that I encouraged him to dig the plug and recover his target without me. To be honest, I was tired of assisting him in recovering yet another tin can. Being lulled into low expectations from so many bottle caps and pull tabs, the excitement in his voice as he realized what he had found punctuated the air and justified our patience and resolve. It was a Manet ball, or what is commonly called a three-ringer, a new type of bullet that was fired by countless rifles in the Civil War. Made of lead, it's quite large and has a conical shape with a hollow base. After being fired, it was the impressed rings which enabled it to expand and fit the rifling of the barrel, allowing for a longer and more precise trajectory. Its size, velocity, and accuracy was a devastating advancement in warfare. At first, he thought it was a rock because the head was mushroomed by impact with some other object. Long ago, it must have been discharged in this vicinity and careened sharply until gravity wrestled it to the ground. For these years, it has remained still and unaccounted for until he happened to wave his coil over it. Rightly assuming no battles were fought here in Massachusetts, we indulgently imagined troops being deployed south along the railway as having stopped for drills and target practice. The sober realization, we learned, is that the same rifles issued in the Civil War were also less commonly used for hunting. And although a rare find in the North, it is not impossible to discover one here. Nevertheless, it is remarkable for what it represents, both in a historical sense and for me, a deeply personal one. Failed as a classroom teacher and redeemed as a father, I have never been prouder or more excited than the day he pulled that piece of history up into the daylight. Which leads me back to why all this started in the first place. When people ask, what did I find? The superficial answer is a rusted horseshoe, some old coins, and a lead bullet. But I found much more than this. I found a way to be a better dad and a better person. People often presume that I started this hobby with my son to get him outdoors and off his iPad. Pride at being thought of as a responsible parent falsely leads me to agree with this idea, but honesty drives me to the humble conclusion that I needed to get outside and away from my own mobile devices just as badly. It wasn't always harmonious. There were times when he wanted to go home and I wanted to stay. It was hot and the bugs swarmed and bit us. We dug in the dirt, we argued over what we found, and we dreamed of things that have come and gone. The day also came when I had to respectfully concede to him when his passion for grasping a hockey stick overshadowed the swinging of a metal detector. As for me, it has rekindled my desire to understand the past, and as a result, I found out that I'm still young at heart. This I would not have known if not for him. The influences we try to have on our children are typically born of following some expected norms of society. As parents, we often believe we know what is best for our children, but all that is pointless and unjustified if we too don't know what is best for us. What we found together in the dirt was a meaningful way to relate to each other, but also a connection to the past and hopefully a desire to study and preserve it. We learned to be patient and delay gratification, and like Aesop's tortoise found that plodding on wins the race. Together we accomplished what I could not in the classroom, and in the process, it enriched my own life. 
It helped me perceive that although times have changed, the fundamental reasons for living and working in society have not. Food was produced and consumed, money exchanged hands and trade, and new technologies were developed, be them for good or evil. Through all of this were parents like us raising their children and trying to help them find their way. So what I really found was my place in the unending cycle of guiding the next generation. My hope is that a seed has been planted, and for him, history will be a big part of his education, and more importantly, a way of making sense of the world. It is with extreme gratitude that I acknowledge my wife Liz for her love, patience, and support for us two boys. Research on the horseshoe is credited to Sven Lahman, a modern-day blacksmith who preserves this extraordinary craft for future generations. Sven currently resides in Maine, and we eagerly await his Blackfinger Forge and studio opening soon. Music for this podcast episode was performed by New Hampshire's extremely talented singer-songwriter Doug Farrell. For a full version of his beautifully spiritual rock song, please visit Doug at www.reverbnation.com forward slash Doug Farrell. To see images of the horseshoe, coins, Monet Ball, and our family, visit my Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Life Underground Podcast forward slash. Please subscribe, download, rate, and review my podcast using your favorite directory. This is Life Underground, and I'm Dan Tebow. May you bring the lost to the light.